Anyways, we're, we're looking at uh, the book of John tonight. And um, I actually think that this is a wonderful shift that's beginning to happen in the text. What's happening in the book of John is that Jesus is doing ministry. And as he's doing it, there's a mounting tension arising between him and the religious leaders. And we see in a lot of ways how this comes... Uh, and this is be- the tension is increasing tonight, and I'm excited to open that with you. But before we go there, let's go back to uh, this idea of the football game tomorrow night, because I think it actually plays in huge to where I want to go. Um, y'all are what, seven or eight games into the season, you've had three or four home games, and you're starting to find a rhythm. And you're starting to know the excitement and the joy that comes from a football game. I mean, talk, walk this through with me. You know what it's like a few hours before game time. You're in your room, you're getting ready, you're getting excited, you're probably looking for that tailgate that you're going to go to to see your friends, and uh, you're, you're getting amped about celebrating this game with all of these other people. And you can't wait to begin to make your way down to the stadium. You just you feel the buzz in the air, don't you? I mean, the band's playing. They honk that dadgum loud horn. And it just goes crazy. And, uh, and then there's, there's people set up with you know, these little tents all the way around. And th- there's this excitement in the air for the football game. And then, right, the tension just begins to rise in the mount. And, and you're, you go into the stadium, and they're sort of warming up, doing their drills. And you can see you know, people taking their seats. And then the clock begins to kind of kick down, count down, right? To like 10, 9, 8, 7. And you know that like kickoff is about to happen. And it's at that point the players all run out on the field and the crowd begins to what? It begins to get loud. And people are getting excited because the kicker is about to kick off the game. And there's this energy that permeates almost through you to other people. It's so dadgum exciting. And here's the thing. I think that's a great, wonderful thing, and here's why. Because this great picture of joy. It's a wonderful picture of excitement. You're ready to celebrate. There's anticipation of a really, really good thing. And yet, if we're honest, if we're honest, it's an elusive joy. Because Friday morning is going to come. And everything's gone. And so we try to relive that maybe a few Saturdays later, right? Creating that experience, that joy, that that excitement that we long for to sort of experience this happiness in this moment. Well, I want to begin to tell you all tonight that I think that's exactly what's going on here in this text. You may say, what? Football? Ryan, you're making a stretch. I get it, but hang with me. Jesus in this text has gone up to a feast. A feast that was one of been, that have been the biggest feast for Jewish pilgrims to come back into Jerusalem to celebrate, to party, to uh, celebrate what God had done in their midst as a kindness to them. We're going to look at that tonight. But much like you and I, when we go to a football game and we wake up in the morning and the joy is elusive, it doesn't seem to last, it leaves us all... And the readers in this text, the the original audience would have thought this too, and that is, there's a joy out there, but there's an elusive joy. It doesn't seem to stick around. It doesn't seem to last. And it's right into that context that Jesus is going to usher these words tonight. That John chapter 7 is going to tell us, y'all, about a joy that lasts. (coughs) About a joy that sticks around. 
about something that is on offer to you in the Christian life that is eternal and lasts forever. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. But the question remains is, is that how or um, how in the world is this joy coming? How will it come about? How do you receive it? How do you get it? And I believe that John shows us in three particular ways. He shows us true knowing. He shows us a true going. And lastly, a true flowing. So that's how, that's how I flow tonight, okay? Uh, true going, true whatever I said. True knowing, true going, true flowing. Uh, and uh, the reason is, is because all of those point to a true joy, a true joy that lasts. So let's take a look, first of all, at this idea of true knowing. First of all, here it is in, a, in this first little segment here of 25 to 31. What's going on? Well, Jesus has gone up to the city of Jerusalem for this feast called the Feast of Booths. It's also known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of the Ingathering. And we're going to look a little bit more about that in just a moment. But the point for now that I want you to see is that Jesus has come to this feast and in the text before what we read, He has begun to speak. And as He, are, as he is speaking, some people are convinced that they know Him. It says right there in verse 27, right? That, but we know where this man comes from. Push pause there for a second. The idea goes something like this. That there are those in the crowd who know who Jesus is. They think that they know Him. And they think that they know Him because of where He comes from. The text says this. It says that they say, but we know Him. We know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where He comes from. Their rationale is this. Because we know this man named Jesus... And where it is He comes from, He cannot be the Christ. Because when the Christ is to come, we won't know where He comes from. You see the rationale? Now what's really interesting is that Jesus speaks there and He says, You know me, and you know where I come from? My Bible has a question mark. I think that's perfect. It's almost like Jesus is saying, "Uh, What? No, you don't. Because He says it next. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he has sent me. Jesus is talking about the Father from whom he was sent. Now, what does this have to do when I say with true knowing? I would like to suggest to you that Jesus is actually saying this. You don't know me. You don't know who I am. And the irony is, is that you're actually wrong when they say, we know where this man comes from. But, but, but uh, no one will know where he, who he is and where he comes from. And the irony is like, yeah, they actually don't know who he is. They have no idea where he's come from, and they don't know who he is. And I think that what you have to see is that Jesus goes on to say, you think you know me, but, what, but you don't. And therefore, here's my point. What Jesus is saying is this, is that there is a world of difference between knowing about Jesus which is what this people knew. They knew where He was from. They knew what He was about. And knowing Jesus. I'll say that differently. There is a big difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. A big difference between knowing about and knowing of. In fact, these people got their knowledge about Jesus wrong. And they most certainly didn't know Him personally. Now, why is this so important? Well, I think it's very important because it's just very simple. There's a major difference between knowing of and knowing about. One is everything. 
in terms of salvation and in terms of finding life and fellowship with God. And that is the knowing of. And one is of no spiritual benefit whatsoever, and that is knowing about. As one pastor, theologian, speaker wrote it, uh, put it, he says this. He says, A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about Him. Slow down and read that again. A little knowledge of God is more than a great deal of knowledge about Him. And I think that we understand this just intuitively when we think about knowing somebody. I mean, you can know facts about somebody, right? You can know their, their, their sign or their birthday or what their interests are, but actually knowing them comes at a different level. Let me illustrate. Um, when I began to date Laura, my wife, um, I knew a ton about her. Uh, I knew that she went to college at Davidson College. You know, I knew that she was a runner in high school. I knew that she was from St. Louis. I knew data and facts about her. But it really wasn't until we began to date that I began to know more about her. Uh, I mean, to know her personally, rather. That I began to know what made her tick. That I began to be invested in a relationship with her in such a way that I knew her personally. I think you all know this too, right? I mean, there's the difference between knowing, some, knowing facts about somebody and then knowing them. So the question then remains of, for us is, how do you know? How do you know if you know somebody or if you just know facts about them? And it is simple. You have to think about the quality of knowing an actual person. You see, you can know facts about the TCU football game and the TCU roster, but to actually know somebody is radically different. Here's why. Because when you know somebody, when, you're in a, when you have a personal knowledge of somebody, you've always invested some sort of commitment to that person. Right? You've, you've given up yourself, in a sense, to get to know that person. You're laying your interests and your wants down so that you might know somebody else, that you might bow to them, as it were, to begin to experience the knowledge of that other person. Look, here's the point I want you to see. Only one type of knowing, only one type of true knowing, that knowing of, will bring you the real joy Jesus is going to tell us. Y'all, as a reminder, the book of James, you know that little small epistle, James, in uh, chapter 2, verse 19. Listen to what he says. He says this. He says, even the demons believe and they shudder. That the demons themselves know about God. They know Jesus. And they shudder. And I think that's an incredibly sobering fact to think that hell and all of its occupants know a lot about God. Have you ever thought about that? That's sobering. It's also incredibly sobering too when in Jesus Himself says in Matthew chapter 7, do you remember there at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, people are saying, Lord, we, we, we knew You. We, we cast out demons in Your name. We prophesied in Your name. And, and Jesus Himself says, away from Me. I never knew You. Why? Because there wasn't that personal knowledge. There wasn't that knowledge, as I'm calling, of relationship with God. The point that I'm trying to make is very simple for you tonight. Do you know about God? Or do you know Him? Do you know about Him? Or do you have an intimate, personal knowledge of who He is through the person and work of Jesus Christ? One is everything, and one is nothing. And I would want you to say, 
all of us have to come at some point to a place where we transfer from the knowledge about to a knowledge of. And tonight might be that night for you. Tonight we're going to see that Jesus makes Himself on offer to be known by Him. And I think that's where we want to go next tonight. Because Jesus is going to say, how do you know, how do you know if you know? How do you know what's the test, as it were, if you know God? And it leads us to our second point. And that is this idea of true going. This idea of going to Him. Look in verse 37. Do you see what He says there? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Let him come to Me. Well, before we understand His words, we have to understand what's going on there at this feast. You might remember I just told you that it was the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of the Booths that Jesus was at, also known as the Feast of Ingathering. And if you were an Orthodox Jew or if you yourself grew up in a Jewish family, this is what is referred to as Sukkot, okay? This idea of Sukkoth is how it looks like when it's printed. But it's the Feast of the Ingathering. And it happens at the fall, in the fall, somewhere around end of September, beginning of October. And it was a feast that drew people from all over the world back in to the city of Jerusalem. And y'all, it was a party like you have never seen. Here's why. The harvest had ended. This was not grain harvest. This was olive and grape harvest. And people were bringing their best of foods, their best of feasts to say, thank you God for providing for us yet another year. And because you have provided... We want to celebrate. Now this is very interesting because you have to know that um, there was something that was amazing that was happening every day during this seven or eight week as it had tradition had come, period. That every day the great high priest would go out in the company of the people to this pool of Siloam. And there was a pool there and with this golden vessel he would take out this vessel, fill it with water and walk it back through the streets, back through the temple courtyards, pour it into a bowl, one of two bowls where there was another bowl filled with wine. And then the priest would pour out the water and the wine before the altar. Now, that might sound strange, and I get it. It sounds strange to us, to me too. But the act itself celebrates something great. You see, long ago, when God delivered His people out of the land of Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness in booths, in tents, in tabernacles. And this was a reminder every year of how God provided for them while they were in the wilderness. And so every year they would come and they would commemorate God's provision to them. Well, what about that event commemorated the actual provision? And it was the water. You may remember in Exodus chapter 17, the people were grumbling against Moses when they had been brought out of Egypt. They are saying, have you brought us out here to die? We're dying of hunger. We're dying of thirst. And Moses goes before the Lord. And as he goes before the Lord, he's like, I don't know what to do with these people. They're driving me crazy. They're murmuring against you. They're charging you, O oh God. What should we do? And God says this, I want you to take that staff that I've given you. And I want you, when you go down the mountain, the staff that I've given you is this picture of judgment. It's the rod, right? And he says, and you think, as you're reading, you think, here it is. God is going to level these people for finally... For, they, they've, they've spoken up too many times. 
They've questioned his character too many times. You think rod, you think judgment. He's going to say, and I want you to strike them and I want you to kill every last single one of them because they're pitiful. But instead, God says this. He says, I want you to go down and I want you to strike the rock. I want you to strike the rock in which I dwell and inhabit. And when you strike the rock, water will flow out and it will be for them provision. So every year, In the Feast of Tabernacles, it was a reminder that the judgment of God came not down on the people. It came down on the rock. And the rock provided water for the people. It looked back in that direction, and yet, and yet, it looked forward to. It looked forward to a day that Ezekiel himself, the prophet Ezekiel, foretold. I know this is a lot of Bible, but unless you understand this, you're going to miss it all. And he foretold a day when when God came back to usher in this new messianic age, there would be a day where rivers flowed. That they would flow with fullness. And it would be a sign that God's presence had fully come. That it was fully and finally here. And so there at the tabernacle, there in this picture of this feast, that's what was going on. Now, this is where it gets really, really, really interesting. On the last day, on the great day, Jesus stands up and it says he cries out and he says these words, right? He says, he says to him, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and then I and and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures say, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So do you see the backdrop, right? The backdrop that Jesus is speaking against when He says, come to Me and come to Me and if you thirst, I'll give you water. What He's saying is, is all that what happened in the wilderness and all that the the Feast of Tabernacles was about for all these years, it's finding its summary, its point in Me. Because I am the one who can give true drink. And I am the one who will give the true pouring out of God's presence. That's what's going on here in this picture. Y'all, this is perfect. Because what you're seeing is, is that this constant theme of longing, of desire, coming up over and over again in the book of John. You remember from John chapter 2, it was the picture of the wedding feast, about God fulfilling us. You remember in John chapter 4, it was the picture of the woman at the well. She had desires and God said, Jesus said, I will give you living water. You remember it was the man in John chapter 5 who was born crippled. He was, he was paralyzed rather for 38 years. Do you want to be made well? Do you have these desires? I alone can give them to you. John chapter 6, the people were hungry and God fed them. And here we are in John chapter 7 seeing yet again this provision, this wonderful, wonderful provision that God gives. Y'all, He is saying this. John wants you to show, show you that the idea is, is that the true going, the true going is to go to God with your lack. To go to God with your thirst. How do you know if you know God? You run to Jesus with your thirst. And He is the one that will fulfill you. He is the one that will slake your thirst, who will quench it. But the only way that you can know God is to go in a state of dependence and to go in a state of need. Now, 
I just want to drive this home very, very quickly. Where are you right now in the way that you think, in the way that you conceive of your Christianity, if you are a Christian? You see, I think many of us think Christianity is about having it together. Christianity is about nailing it, right? It's about a perfection. And I just want to say that that is wrong. That that is not Christianity. That is knowing about Jesus, but not knowing Him. You cannot enter into relationship with Him without some sort of lack. That's what Jesus is trying to get at over and over again. Listen, y'all, I want you to see this. The job won't satisfy you. It won't. Some of y'all are already tasting the bitterness of grades that won't satisfy. Some of you know that He won't satisfy you. That she won't satisfy you. Some of you know that acceptance into that group of people is not going to bring is not going to bring a quench to your thirst. And so I just want to ask you, can I, can I be gentle? Like, are you tired yet? Are you tired? Are you worn out? Run to the fountain. Run to Him. He promises to quench our thirst. There is a thirst that God gives for Himself that He Himself can only quench. And I long for you to run to Him tonight to know that. Lastly, He doesn't just say this idea about true knowing. He also shows us about true going. And then lastly, yes, I love my rhymes tonight. It is this, it is this true flowing. What am I talking about? Look in verses 38 and 39. Jesus says this, Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this He said about the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as of yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, the thing you need to see is that Jesus promises that once we come to Him, we are instantaneously made vessels of His grace. That we are made men and women who are not meant to maintain and hold His grace but rather we are people through whom grace, those living waters, will flow. Do you see? We're meant to be conduits of His grace. That's what it means there when it says, out of His heart will flow rivers of living water. Now what you need to see is, is what does this mean or how does this come about? Well, Jesus says this, this comes about by the person and the work of the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. That when God comes into our life, what that means is, is that the Holy Spirit, who is not a force, He is not a special feeling that you get. The Holy, per- the Holy Spirit is a person. He is a He, not an it. And the Holy Spirit, when He comes to us and indwells in us, He empowers us to be able to put on to display and to give to the world the riches of Christ that we ourselves have tasted. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus is getting at there. Now the good question that some of you might be asking is, wait a second here, Ryan. Is this saying that the Holy Spirit did not exist before Jesus? You see how how I would ask that? Because it says the Spirit had not yet been given. 
right? It had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, two things. First of all, historically what that means is, is that Jesus lived, He died, He rose again from the grave, He spent 40 days on earth, and on that 40th day He ascended to the Father. And Jesus will tell us in John 14 and John 16 that when He goes to the Father, He will send another Helper. And that Helper is the Comforter or the Holy Spirit. So what He's referring to here is, is the ascension. If it weren't for the ascension, the Holy Spirit would never come with the power that it has for us. But the question still remains, does that mean that the Holy Spirit had not yet come to those beforehand? And the answer is no. The Old Testament is clear that the Holy Spirit has existed. He's existed as the Trinity. He has always existed forever and will always exist forever. But what this means is that there is an intensification of the Spirit. And, and a, an outpouring in a way that the people of God had not yet seen or experienced yet that came at the day of Pentecost that you learn about in Acts chapter 2. So what he is saying is, is that you and me, now uh, Christians in, this, in the world today, that when Christ comes, when He regenerates us, we are given the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about this in uh, Timothy chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 1. It talks about the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And when He dwells within us, we now have this incredible power, this incredible source to be able to be blessing givers to the world around us. Now, how do we make this practical? Well, I think a great illustration for your eyes would be this. How many of y'all have ever been to Yellowstone? Yellowstone National Park. You've seen Old Faithful, right? Old Faithful goes off about every 35 minutes to two hours. It's an amazing sight. And I think that many of us sort of think, you know what, the Christian life is sort of like, I give, I give, I give, and then I'm done. I got, I got nothing more to give. And if the picture is actually more like a fountain or a geyser like Old Faithful, that the promise to you and me is, y'all listen, if you are a Christian, that the Holy Spirit dwells in you, giving you the resources and the abilities to be a constant blessing to the world around you. That doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you get it right all the time. It doesn't mean that you don't need rest. No, 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 no. But it means that there are resources to actually do the Christian life. Y'all might know people that drain you, right? You just, I just can't. I can't go there with that person. If you're a Christian, the Scriptures will correct you. And say, yes, you can go there. Because the Holy Spirit has empowered you to be able to do that. You might say, you know what? I'm never going to beat this porn addiction. I'm never going to beat it. And the Holy Spirit says to you, there is power. There is power to fight this. You may say, you know what? I'm never, eating. I'm never beating this eating disorder. I'm never going to do it. Jesus says living waters. They reside in you. They will flow through you. So quit believing what you think about you and start believing what Jesus says is actually true about you. That's what's going on here in this text. Jesus is saying that we were made to be a blessing to others. Y'all listen. What do you think TCU needs? Look around you. What is it? What does your dorm need? What does your sorority need? What do your friends need? What does your department need? Do you know that you are the conduits of God's grace to this campus. There's nobody else. 
There's nobody else. This campus will be blessed because of the Christians here who are conduits of God's grace to the lost and hurting campus. Y'all see that? That's the great promise. Y'all are the ones. We're the ones that get to be the ones who bring renewal and get to be a part of God's redeeming work in the lives of men and women on this campus. That's a staggering promise. An incredible mission that God gives to us. Well, I want to land here and I want to tell you a story. In 1623, a mathematician and philosopher was born. He would, in his short life of 39 years, do the following. He would develop what most would call the first computer. Yes, back in the 1600s. Culminate his famous law in physics. Develop the theory of probability that we still use today in mathematics. Invent the syringe, the hydraulic lift, and the wristwatch. All by the time he was 39 years old. He was a genius. To say the man was accomplished would be an understatement. His name, Blaise Pascal. You know him from Pascal's Law. A scientist, a philosopher, a physicist. And after his death, however, someone found something very important to Pascal sewn inside his coat. It was a note, a letter, a letter of an experience he had when he was 31 years old, eight years prior to his death. And it was a note that he wrote and he sewed himself into the coat lining of his coat right upon his heart. Listen what it said. From about half past ten in the evening until about half past twelve, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and not of the philosophers and savants. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. There it is. It was Pascal's note to himself as he described what it meant to come to a knowledge of who God was. An intimate, relational, personal knowledge that he would characterize as nothing but fire. It was so intense. And when Pascal experienced and knew God that way, he himself says it. Joy. Peace. The stuff that lasts. The stuff that we long for tomorrow night when we're in the stadium going buck wild and crazy that will end that night. That will not exist on Friday morning. Pascal says what Jesus says. Joy. Living waters. So much so that your cup will be so full, will be so full of wine that it will flow over the brim such that you will be a blessing to the world around you. Nothing less is on offer for you tonight. Do you know that? It's an invitation. Jesus Himself says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let's pray.